Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for joining us. Today's show is a replay of our recent Market Matters event, which provided insights and analysis on how the capital markets are expected to fare as we approach the end of 2020 and look ahead to the new year. Mark Gibson, the CEO of JLL Capital Markets here in the Americas, provided the forecast for us. Mark has become a fixture at our annual capital markets updates, and with good reason. He leads more than 2,000 capital markets professionals across the U.S., Canada, and Latin America, and as a member of JLL's Capital Markets Board, shares responsibility for the firm's strategic direction, growth, and client activity. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to thank our Market Matters sponsors, Grant Thornton, Colliers International, and DCEO. I'd also like to remind you to please subscribe to the show to get all new episodes right to your mobile device and to follow Trek on social media. Now, here's Mark Gibson in our annual Capital Markets Update right here on TrekCast. Um, It's a Capital Markets Update. And first and foremost, um, we would like to thank our generous sponsors, our series sponsor, Grant Thornton, our event sponsor, Colliers International, and our media partner, DCEO Magazine. So thank you to y'all. 2020 has been uh, many things. Um, No real need to elaborate on that one too much. Um, But it's also, and very importantly, been the Real Estate Council's 30th anniversary this year. And albeit somewhat eclipsed by some of the uh, more notable current events, it is still a uh, momentous time in our organization's rich history. As the organization of, as the largest organization of this kind in Texas, uh, we've always been a formidable group of doers and dreamers. We've been unafraid to make hard decisions or taking first steps. We are committed to transforming neighborhoods touching lives, but we cannot truly catalyze sustainable community revitalization without the generosity, the leadership, and the dedication of the commercial real estate professionals and companies that our organization represents in our North Texas area. As we face 2021 coming up, we need you, our members, to dig in with us as we continue this important work in our community investment in our leadership development, and in pursuit of good public policy. Here's the promo. Please be sure to renew your Trek membership for 2021. It's really important. Be part of the story as we confidently march into the next 30 years as we continue our charge to build a city that you've imagined. Now I'd like to introduce uh, our today's uh, event sponsor, Creighton Stark. Creighton is the Executive Vice President at Colliers International, um, who's gonna share a brief market update with us. I think he is mobile, but we should hear him well um, before we get into the program. So Creighton, are you there? I'm here, thank you, Mike, and good morning, everyone. Um, And thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak to everyone. I just wanna say that uh, The last year has indeed been a wild ride, but Texas is clearly open for business as the number one investment sales market in the country. Every single trend that we are seeing is focused around the migration of employers and capital coming into the state. In fact, Texas has 196 active corporate relocations and expansions in the works, 
more than before COVID. And that's due to our relatively stable economic and political environment. Investors are looking for low to mid-rise office buildings in suburban North Texas with prominent lobby stairways and multiple points of entry. The lack of density being near where employees live and a reduced commute time is also contributing to this trend. Underlying themes include the compression migration effect, the Preston Parallel, and the STEM corridor, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. All of these themes are representative of the types of deals we have in the market today. And that is resonating with institutional investors who are also looking for deals with secure cash flow. It's interesting to note that $13.4 billion in real estate transactions have closed in North Texas year to date. Our office has been as busy as ever. In fact, our most recent transaction, Preston Park, an institutional product type, just under 50 million, was launched, marketed, and closed during the pandemic, which is a strong indicator of our stable economy. Mind you, at pricing guidance. Thank you so much for including Colliers in today's presentation. Feel free to reach out if I can help in any way. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Creighton. Um, appreciate that. Uh, I don't know. It was kind of fun while Creighton was speaking to flip through and look at everybody's faces. There's some new ones in there and some old, some old friends. So it's really good to see everybody. I hope y'all might do that during uh, when you have a chance. It's good to see everybody. And um, now I'd like to present uh, Rena Parikh. Um, and uh, Rena is our representing our um, series sponsor, Grant Thornton. She is the audit partner at Grant Thornton, who's going to share a brief word and I think a video with us. Arena, thank you. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Thank you, Mike. And I really appreciate this opportunity to share a few words about Grant Thornton. Arena uh, Parikh, I'm audit partner and also lead our real estate practice here in Dallas. Uh, uh, I'm here today representing Grant Thornton. We are a proud sponsor of Track Market Matters. Uh, you know, Grant Thornton is comprised of assurance, tax, and advisory professional. Uh, with a large international network in over 130 countries, and then we have 56 offices here in U.S. Um, so for more than 100 years, you know, we have helped organizations realize their business goal and ambitions. Uh, we all know the opportunities and challenges, and real estate industries are abundant, uh, but the COVID-19 has created unprecedented economic time for real estate owners and entities. So, um, our grandchildren professionals are proud to support a number of companies who are looking to finance growth, manage risk, uh, manage regulatory environment that we all are working in. Uh, so we have scale, you know, combined with the local market understanding uh, to serve companies, you know, where you are and where you want to be. So uh, once again, we are very pleased to support Real Estate Council and Track in producing this informative program for us today. Uh, and please enjoy our short video clipping about our latest technology platform. Welcome to Alex, powered by Grant Thornton. Alex is the intersection of innovation and practicality, enabling streamlined, right-sized technology solutions that actually work. Need to help you meet challenges of every size, no matter how small, by connecting real people with the right resources so that your solution is made with speed and made for you. 
Tell us where you are and where you want to be. Grant Thornton uses Alex to listen, learn, and match you with the right tech and resources to make progress a reality now with results you can see. Because every win adds up to transformation, to progress that multiplies, to proof of what you have the power to achieve. Simple, practical, powerful. This is Alex. Um, thank you again. Thank you, uh, Rena, for that. We really appreciate that and really appreciate Grant Thornton. Thank you again to uh, Creighton and Colliers International and to um, the DCO Magazine, of course. And now um, it's my pleasure to introduce Ms. Kim Butler. Along with being the Director of Leasing at Hall Group, she's also our Trek Programs Chair for 2020. She's done a fantastic job this year um, bringing us great content that we can all kind of enjoy, get together with, and learn from. And it's a great way to wrap up the year. So um, good morning, Kim. Good morning, Mike. Thank you very much. Uh, we're excited to have Mark Gibson today. I was telling Mark I always end up with a note full, uh, notepad full of notes uh, during his program. It's a highlight of the year, and we're thrilled to have him. Before we get started, a quick note to everyone. Um, Mark will be taking questions at the end of his presentation, so please send those uh, via the chat fun function to Holland Morris, and uh, please send those at any time during the program. She'll be collecting those. Uh, now I'm glad to introduce Mark. Mark is executive Chief Executive Officer of JLL Capital Markets Americas, leads 2,000 capital markets professionals in U.S., Canada, and Latin America. He also shares responsibility for the strategic direction, growth, and client activities of JLL's global central markets business, as he's a member of the board's global capital markets board. Uh, before becoming CEO of JLL Capital Markets Americas, uh, as part of the HSFF acquisition, Mark was a founding partner and CEO of HFF. His career began in real estate when he earned a degree in business uh, administration at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, as I'm told, the University of Texas. Uh, Mark is a great giver uh, to our industry and our community. He provides guidance and leader, leadership at uh, UT Real Estate Finance and Investment Center as executive committee member, and he's also advisory council member at the McCombs School of Business. Uh, he is former chairman of our Real Estate Council and is currently on our advisory board, and we thank him for his leadership for many years here at the Real Estate Council. Uh, he is a board member of AFIRE, Executive Committee member, ULI, and trustee for ICSC. There's not an organization in our industry I don't think Mark has uh, not contributed to. He, in the community, currently sits on the board for UT Southwestern University Hospital, previously on the Board of Advisors for Baylor Healthcare System Foundation. Mark is a true contributor, and we thank him for his many contributions. Uh, when he has a little spare time, he enjoys spending it with his family, traveling, and fly fishing. And so without further ado, Mark Gibson, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much, Kim. Um, and everyone, thanks for joining. I'm sharing my screen, so let me know when that appears. 
So I know everyone loves Zoom calls, especially when uh, someone's talking to you for an extended period of time. And that was a joke and a little bit of sarcasm to start it off. But I'll do my best to try and keep the pace of play pretty fast here, as we have done uh, in the past. And so we'll just jump right into this. Uh, as Kim said, we're going to do some Q&A, uh, if anyone has any, uh, at the end of this uh, presentation, and just jot it down and glad to take a few minutes at the end. So let's jump right in uh, to the presentation. All right, so if you look at uh, some of the influences, we don't really have to spend a lot of time about the election. I think that's uh, hopefully somewhat history. Um, but you did have a lot of anxiety and a lot of angst relative to our business when you look at 1031 exchanges and cap gains. That's probably going to be a little less cause for anxiety in the future. We'll see how that plays out, but that was generating some concern and some trades that we were seeing in the marketplace. Uh, I think uh, what I would tell you from an investor perspective, and I try and give you an investor perspective, not JLL or my personal perspective here, um, everyone is now looking past uh, where we are relative to health concerns on COVID. They, they're confident that we're going to have a vaccine that is going to work and we're going to have other therapeutics that will help uh, give confidence back to corporations to get back to work and other things that can help our economy. So you really have to, let's use the euphemism to escape to the puck, nine months. So think about what the market would look like in the third quarter, assuming that a lot of these issues that we've been facing in some form or fashion were actually caused by an event that is going to be much better in nine months. So how does that change your investment perspective? And I think it's a healthy way to look at it. And I can assure you most of the large LPs around the world are thinking in, in, in those terms. Uh, many people say, gosh, we have all these new trends uh, that have happened in commercial real estate or in the economy, but particularly pertaining to commercial real estate. And we just really disagree with that. We don't see anything new that didn't pre-exist prior to COVID in terms of trend lines. So when you think about employment movement or you think about population movement or you think about edensification of office or you think about retail having a restructure, all of those things were occurring pre-COVID. They've just been radically accelerated uh, through COVID. And if anyone has any questions on that, we can do our best to answer. From a real estate specific standpoint, if you look at number two here, hard assets are most definitely in favor Allocations are increasing currently 10 and a half going to 11. Uh, most of our large state plans are already at 13 to 15% allocation. And interestingly, the denominator effect did not really have an issue, even in the depth of a correction in March, April, uh, at the peak of COVID, when we had drops, significant drops in the equity market, publicly traded equity market. So the band uh, thesis that a lot of our pension plans and others put in place so it gives them flexibility not to sell down assets to rebalance a portfolio really worked, even in a fairly you know, dramatic situation in March, April. So that's, that's good from a stability standpoint. You go to point number three, we have a broad investor universe. So it's across all. Institutional equity is playing, cross-border activities, playing to the extent they can. Uh, limited travel, but technology has really made up for a lot of that. We're doing quite a bit uh, with cross-border capital currently in the U.S. And then importantly, a new entrant, it's not really new. It has been happening for quite some time, but it is really uh, 
come to the forefront uh, during COVID, and that's the private family office investor. And when I say private family office, we say that it's not your $20 million investment here or there. It can be as large as a billion dollars of equity that we're doing, uh, and in some cases, with single asset trades. So very prominent uh, new source that has come in and has been very much on the front foot during COVID. Excellent liquidity across the debt and equity markets, so 200 billion of dry powder. Really liquidity exists across all sectors. So, and that means retail and hospitality. It's there, the question is what a price. The debt market, incredibly active. Probably the best debt market I've seen uh, in some 30 years relative to pricing, depending upon your property sector. But very liquid, including the money center banks, which were largely absent until August, September, but they're now back, which helps us in the large deal format front. And our BOV and RFP activity uh, has significantly increased. Uh, so from a, uh, a deal flow perspective, our pipelines now are at pre-COVID levels, which I think is a good uh, takeaway here in terms of ability to look at product coming into the marketplace. Um, let me forward the slide. If I go to number five here on pricing, um, it's really interesting. You kind of have a, it's a bifurcated market for sure. So virtually every week we're setting record pricing for industrial trades, life science trades, portions of the multi-housing market, depending upon the geography you live in and work in. Um, we're also setting records for data centers and other alternative components of real estate. So that's been extraordinary. We have price discovery underway for office, retail, hotels, and there are different ranges. And I've given you some discounts of zero to 20%. Generally speaking, in the office arena, if you don't have a long dated vault or single tenant, long dated COVID defensive tenant, uh, you're generally seeing somewhere between five and a 10% uh, discount on the office front to pre-COVID levels. We'll see how that plays out over time, but that is one area where people are interested in relative to long-term effects and work from home and various other aspects. Cap rate compression is occurring uh, due to the in-favor uh, property types and also due to the low cost of debt uh, within those property types. Focused on uh, rent collections, consistency of income, and again, anything long dated wallet with a defensive COVID tenancy uh, is going to be in high demand. Hold periods have been increasing uh, because we have price discovery. So that always happens when you have a shock to the market. So that's nothing new. Uh, refinancing is clearly an excellent option to sale. Uh, Odyssey, so Odyssey is our largest core fund in the United States. It's an index that they benchmark themselves to. It contains approximately 26 funds in the US. But their business model is, is raising capital. Uh, they're low levered, high quality assets uh, and high quality portfolios that are diversified. So they're across the four quadrants, generally speaking, in the real estate space. Um, they are having a difficult time raising capital depending upon their product mix, particularly if they're overweighted to office and retail. And that has sell down implications with very high quality uh, assets that we're beginning to see in the marketplace simply because you can't affect the business model and raise capital uh, if you're over allocated to those sectors currently. So we've spoken a little bit about property types, but just a few additional comments. 
uh, industrial multi-housing again, terrific, but the question is, is the pricing that we're seeing in some of these sectors sustainable over a long period of time? Investors are beginning to question that. Um, any defensive sector, which we've hit a little bit, and I'm gonna throw in single family rental, which has become uh, very quickly institutional recognized asset class with an enormous amount of capital moving into it. Value add lower quality remains challenged, but plenty of capital for opportunistic uh, property types. So think hospitality and retail specifically. No lack of liquidity, it's a matter of price discovery. And then configuration, and really speaking more to the office and some supply chain comments here, JLL took a really hard uh, stance. We drew a line in the sand and essentially said we're bullish on office now, because we spent a lot of time going back in time and looking how work from home affected culture, employee retention, stock price to various companies that have experimented with it over the last several years. And then just looking at our own 90,000 employees around the world and behavior of that. And what we have discovered is in order to grow and to innovate and to retain and mentor and train, you really need a collaboration and a collaborative effect. Uh, won't be for all industries, but it will be for many. So we'll see how that plays out over time. But in the trend lines that were happening, we were already facing de-densification in office because we went too far and productivity was suffering. So when we look at de-densification versus work from home for a percentage of the industries, we think over time office is gonna be in good stand. And then again, the whole idea of supply chain logistics uh, changes, we think that is a, it was already pre-COVID, but we think it's going to be a long-term trend change where just-in-time inventory really isn't gonna work in the future for all the reasons we now know uh, having live through this pandemic, or the majority of it through the pandemic. Uh, in terms of investors and operator allocators, so think of an allocator as an investment management firm, think of an operator, developer, uh, owner operator as an asset. Um, the models are changing dramatically. It was happening pre-COVID, but it has really accelerated. We're having a blending of the models. So an investment management platform is buying an operator developer or a developer owner operator is moving into the investment management business. There are a host of reasons why that is happening. Uh, our M&A activity uh, is at a record uh, in terms of either a public to private or a private to private or a lot of different things in between from a recap standpoint of both operators and investment managers. So this is not going to change. I think it's a long-term trend. Think about the Canadian uh, model uh, as one example of what that looks like. But you can also look at Heinz and Tishman and Shorenstein and Mill Creek and a lot of others that have moved into this space uh, and are operating very, very well. Um, the big are getting bigger, and that is something to think about relative to scale being important in the marketplace. When we talk about scale and you look at the public market, if you're really under $5 billion, as point number two here mentions uh, under number 10, um, if you're $5 billion and under, it's going to be difficult. Just simply because of technology spend and what it what you need to trade efficiently and effectively in the public market, which is going to create some M&A MA activity in the future once we have some right sizing in NAV. Also, just for takeaway in the private market, um, this GICS uh, 
nomenclature that happened in 2016 or the change, the global industry classification standard, uh, has really created a lot of volatility in the wheat market. Uh, and so that is causing a lot of your large LPs to take money out of the public market and put it back into the private market simply because real estate doesn't change values quarter to quarter. We have something called leases. It takes time to figure out valuations, et cetera. We all know that. So that's a positive trend for those of you in the private sector. Geographic investment trends, all of these were existing pre-COVID. They've just been radically accelerated. So you can read these. I won't need to do that. But we track mail forwarding. We track school enrollments. We track mover, think of U-Haul things like that, uh, from certain areas of the country to other areas of the country. It, it is real. It was pre-existing to COVID. It has become very evident uh, during COVID, and we don't see this change. So it's just been accelerated, and fortunately, living in Dallas or in the state of Texas, we've been a recipient of quite a bit of this population move and employment move, and we're very blessed to be here, uh, all of us should be very thankful if you're in the real estate business here. Uh, acceleration and tech adoption, just something to think about here. Uh, we see the in-place e-commerce penetration. We think that was happening anyway. It's a hybrid model of bricks and sticks online, and there are a lot of discussions we can have along those lines. You see what uh, e-commerce has done or tech companies have done in both the office and the industrial space. We really haven't seen work from home diminishing the office need yet because people are waiting to see what happens again, thinking nine to 12 months into the future and not making rash decisions based on the temper of the times that we currently find ourselves in. So we'll see how that plays out. So it's still uncertain. Uh, and the last thing I would say on the big, uh, big theme component is the, um, the amount of change from a technology standpoint that we're going to see in the real estate industry over the next five years is going to be extraordinary. Uh, JLL has been investing in these new age technologies via a venture fund that we set up. And so we get a really good look at it and we try it out on clients. And some of these uh, technologies and new ways of thinking about business are pretty extraordinary. I think it's going to make the industry quite efficient, more efficient, uh, and some changes in business models and things like that. So with that, let me continue on because those are the themes in these slides that I'm going to show you are just going to be confirmatory evidence from third party of those themes. Um, so you can just see the evidence that uh, we have used to come to those conclusions. If you look at the volume in the US, these are investment sale volumes. And you can see we're down 40% year to date, down 59% quarter to quarter comparison of 20 to 19. But interestingly, uh, up from third quarter, 2020 from second quarter of 2020. And that is reflective of what uh, I was speaking to earlier relative to our pipeline and deal volumes increasing, et cetera. So that is a real trend. We'll see if it holds, but that is happening and that is a very good sign for all of us in the space. I've broken it down for those of you that really want to study this because you won't have time to study it here uh, by property type of the four major uh, property sectors here, although that is quickly changing in terms of four major. Uh, but when you start looking at, for instance, retail at the very bottom quadrant, and you go, my gosh, why was there this much activity in 2018 or 19? Well, you have very large trades that happen that skew the data. 
So we've given you those large trades and you can do your best to right size the volume that is reported by RCA. So if you just look at Unibuy you know, and Westfield's acquisition in 18, or you look at Prologis Liberty Property Trust that happened in February of this year, those are needle moving trades that do affect volumes when you look at it by property value. When you look at price differentiation, um, we look at this not because I'm looking at what is the largest market of trades. I really just want to look at it from an investor perspective about liquidity. And liquidity is a component and a very important component of price. So Dallas-Fort Worth um, has done very, very well. And you can see where we come from and the liquidity is only increasing. But if you look at some other markets and there's a theme here of Denver, Raleigh-Durham and Charlotte and Nashville, they've been moving in the right direction pretty dramatically across the board. And this next slide uh, tells you why. So if you look at population growth on the bottom axis and you look at the employment growth on the vertical axis, most institutional investors that are of scale, so large overseas sovereigns and state plans in the US have predominantly invested uh, the majority of their investment in large gateway urban cities over a long period of time. Well, they are shifting that focus to these types of markets and the amount of input and inquiries that we are getting relative to education on these markets is pretty extraordinary. And it is across the spectrum of investors. So that is an interesting trend that we don't see changing uh, post-COVID when we get it under control. You get paid a little more if you're in non-major markets, so that's an even better uh, tailwind uh, that we see in those markets. And ironically, if you look at uh, where we have seen the volatility over time, and again, going back to my comment about volatility being an anathema to large-scale investors, the gray line are major markets, and you can see that they've been much more volatile than the non-major markets over time, primarily driven by San Francisco and Boston over time. So people are beginning and investors are beginning to step back and go, look, where, where is the most defensive place that we can invest uh, long-term? And maybe we need a diversification policy and strategy in place versus being so concentrated in certain markets. And that is going to be quite favorable to a lot of the markets that I just mentioned. If we look at uh, how, should, how should we all feel relative uh, to diversification uh, of capital, I don't look at who the large book runners are here. I just look at the colors because they represent different types of capital. And you want a very diverse playing field of equity. And this happens to be equity. So here you see overseas capital, we see corporate capital, you see uh, public REITs, you see the investment management group institutional, you see some high net worth family offices, both domestic and overseas. So that looks very, very good to us. And it makes us feel better about our plans for 2021. If we look at the REIT market, and I mentioned the four primary property types in the RCA data, but if you look at the REIT market and how it has changed dramatically over the last five years, look at industrial at 16%, residential at 15, data centers at 15, healthcare at 11, office at nine. Now, who would have thought about that 10 years ago? So look at the change of the uh, sector makeup in the public market at 1.1. And if you look to the right and the performance to the right, you can see it's fairly reflective of the private market. So it is interesting to look at the changing landscape public. And of course, we do a lot of exit type uh, 
used for both public and private companies. And this is just an interesting uh, point that we consider and come to some conclusions. If you look at NAV, and I mentioned NAV about M&A activity, uh, the top row here is just the number of weeks we were trading to a premium or discount relative to NAV. So you see the in favor, uh, multi-housing, healthcare, industrial, net lease, you see the out of favor. And then if you go to the left, and if you go to the bottom, you can see the percentage discounts uh, that are happening across the board to NAV, again, depending upon how you define NAV, which is pretty reflective of what we're saying. Of note, look at the differentiating differentiation between shopping center and mall. So there is differentiation in the public market. Last comment is look at net lease at 36.5% premium to NAV. And ironically, the vast majority of this composition, so we call it 60 to 70%, are actually retail assets. And yet retail is trading at a significant uh, discount to NAV. So that is one of these conundrums that you think about uh, in the public market and, and the rationale behind it. Uh, M&A activity is off the charts, uh, really down low, primarily because of the NAV discounts that we just mentioned. We see that right-sizing over time, depending upon the property type uh, that is in favor or out of favor. If you look at the unlisted wheat market, so this is the old model, where you had a lot of fees, you invest a dollar, and your NAV was 84 cents the next month because of the fee load that was there that started this industry. Blackstone changed it. And you saw that happening in December of 18, really moving up. So fee loads were dramatically down. And you can see that we've come down a little bit, but it is now beginning to go back up. And if you know about Blackstone's B-Read and other components like that, we see that incoming flow of capital rebounding sharply uh, across the world. So that is a very good sign for commercial risk. If you look at the institutional market, uh, I mentioned that Allocations are going up, and then you can see the closed end and open end bond market up approximately 180% in both cases, 170 and 180, which is terrific. So allocations continue to go up and investments continue to go up, and again, 200 billion of dry powder. Uh, if you look at fundraising, and I mentioned the bigger getting bigger, record fundraising here, or record dry powder at uh, 200 plus billion. But if you look at the number of funds being raised, really down, and that means it's concentrating larger and larger funds. So you have a barbell effect of large funds and, and small funds that they're starting out entrepreneurially and the middle is getting somewhat squeezed. Uh, and this slide is really only to illustrate the 11% uh, target that that is an average that people are moving to, these large institutions are moving to, and that just bodes well for all of us. Again, our state plans in the U.S. are generally significantly higher than somewhere between 12 and 15 percent of the larger uh, plans. Moving on to the family offices, um, pretty shocking slide if you think about this. So two-thirds of these offices, which are, let's call it 10 trillion, uh, were established after 2000. And you can see the allocation to real estate at 17 percent. So a very significant player in the market. And we're doing an enormous amount of work with this group. Again, from smaller denominations to very, very large denominations and acting more like uh, institutional capital. On the cross-border front, um, just a couple of takeaways here. If you look at Japan Post and you look at GPIF, which is the second one down, and you go all the way to the bottom and you look at CalPERS, which is our largest 
um, state plan. Uh, the allocation to state to CalPERS here is actually 13%, so we're a little off of that 10% that you see there. But look at the delta between 2.1 trillion and 353 million. And these larger funds have very little invested in real estate. So when you think about growth of capital, particularly for US consumers of this capital, real estate index, these are going to be the major movers going forward in terms of availability of capital for US investment. So we're paying really close attention to them and we know them very well. Uh, and again, if you look at the top right corner at 2.3%, that's where they currently are of the largest uh, overseas capital sources in the world. So a lot of runway here. Um, volume is down 68%. You can imagine why they can't get here, they can't travel, they can't tour. We're doing deals with them, but it's much more difficult. Uh, it used to be impacted, not because of travel, but because of currency. And this currency uh, issue in terms of hedging cost was 400 basis points at its peak, particularly in the EU. But you can see now those have all normalized with the exception of China. So that is really helping uh, us, particularly when you think about the negative interest rate environment in Europe and the amount of fixed income maturities that are happening in their markets over the next two to three years. It's going to be pretty dramatic in terms of yield chasing and capital flows. When you look at the debt market very quickly, um, it's much better than the investment sale market. So the investment sale market, again, down almost 65% here, down 28% because a lot of refinancings are taking place. And the debt market is very liquid, as we mentioned. Here's the quick snapshot of the, each one of the flavors, of commercial banks, agencies, CMBS, insurance companies. And the multi and the uh, originations on the right side in terms of where the money is going. So you can take a look that multi-housing is clearly doing really good. Industrial is only down that much because of the logistry. So again, trying to uh, normalize the data for you. But let's look at each one uh, so you just get a visual. So commercial bank, banks are down 32% uh, first half to first half, but we see that really increasing in the third quarter and moving into the fourth quarter again with the money center banks back in play. If you look at the insurance companies, they have been on the front foot for quite some time here in the lending, even in the face of the pandemic at its peak, uh, they just haven't seen the deal flow. So it's more deal flow versus capital availability. Agencies have been extraordinarily active um, as they were in the GFC. So can't say enough positive things about their behavior. Uh, during this period of time, and they've been tremendous. Uh, as has every lender, frankly, just been very measured uh, and disciplined and available, but but measured. And I think that is a good thing for the industry long term. And CMBS just being in the public market, obviously down 53%. Of note is the uh, debt fund raising. We have three debt funds in the market that we're raising as a placement agent. So again, primarily large LPs around the world are the investors here. And it is just very, very competitive. We were fortunate to have received a very significant commitment, so probably the largest commitment by a, an investor in the world to a fund in the last three weeks. And it just tells you that there are ample capital uh, ready to move and be on the front foot uh, relative to investing in this time frame, which is really good from a liquidity perspective. Um, Composition, again, going back to how we talked about the equity market, if you look at the debt market, we were in pretty bad shape in 2007 with 50% of our 
market tied to the CMBS business. If you look all the way to the bottom. If you look to the top, it's a very different story relative to diversification of sources of capital. So again, from a stability perspective, that has favorable uh, implications for the real estate industry. And on pricing, finally, um, supply relatively in check. We're beginning to see it go down for all the reasons that most of you know. A trend line uh, that we have been watching for quite some time are read values relative to replacement cost, and it's a reasonable uh, correlation. So with the read values down uh, fairly dramatically, we are beginning to see cost come in, depending upon what it is and where it is in the country, and we'll see if that plays out over time, particularly land cost in certain geographies. Uh, institutional investors really pay attention to this. So the JMP implied cap rate is the public mark. The RC cap, RCA cap rate is anything above two and a half million. These are all sales and NACREP is your institutional market. So you can see the discipline that most of them have employed relative to spreads at the bottom right to the long-term averages. So they are dramatically over, which means they haven't dropped spread-wise to the U.S. Treasury. Now, whether that remains the same, we'll see over time given the thirst for income and yield. A lot of people use this slide to state for in favor property types that there is room for cap rate compression. We have seen that in the industrial and the multi-housing space in the last three months. From a total return perspective, if you look at the uh, capital appreciation, which is a component, and you look at the income appreciation, which is another component, in 07, with really ridiculous underwriting metrics, uh, two-thirds of that total return was on the back end, on the sale, capital appreciation side. Whereas today, with very measured metrics, uh, almost 75% of the total return is through current income. That is a much more stable metric for all of us to think through and from an investor standpoint in the marketplace. Leverage is considerably down uh, from 07 to 2020. Uh, and when we look at interest rates and where, where might things go, this forward curve, the fixed income market is the largest trading market in the world and it has a forward curve. Uh, so when you look at this, you can see that it's projecting rates to continue to fall over the next period of time through 2022. And then you see this gradual up. We'll see how that plays out over time in the, in the, in the interplay between LIBOR and SOFR. But something to keep in mind relative to interest rates uh, is um, our position around the globe. So I've just put the GDP and unemployment rates and various things that you're uh, familiar with. And this is Oxford Economics and Consensus of Bloomberg. They're never right, so I don't spend a lot of time on it, but you can look at what they're thinking about for 2021. But at the bottom where I've shaded the uh, slides here, the U.S. used to have a very commanding differential in its tenure bond relative, in particular, to European countries with negative rates. Uh, it's a little more thin now from a competitive perspective, which adds into the commentary, where do we see capital flows going and where do we see the relative value of that happening? And we'll pay attention to the tenure bond uh, over time to see if it normalizes. But at the moment, we're still in really good stead to attract overseas capital, as we mentioned before, we don't have near the competitive advantage that we've enjoyed over the last three to four years. So with that, and I'm sorry for the speed at which I went through, uh, uh, these slides can be available to you. Just 
uh, email us and we'll get it to you so you can sh uh, study them in uh, a little bit slower pace and at your leisure. But for now, why don't we stop Kim and see if there are any questions. If I haven't bored everyone to death, then we'll go from there. Mark, thank you. That was, that was awesome. While we uh, have questions coming in, I'll have a question. I'll have a question that opportunistic uh, is up. And um, I'm just curious where you're seeing large amounts of that capital being deployed in this environment. So it's a great question, Kim. Uh, we closed the first hospitality trade in the U.S. during COVID in New York. So that is probably a pretty good example. We are very active in the retail space currently. Uh, uh, and when I say retail, you can't think of retail. Retail would take an hour to discuss, but food anchored retail or the top one or two grocer, which is COVID defensive, uh, has not changed its pricing pre-COVID to post-COVID. So those are in high demand. They're attracting core capital, which is not a lot of them trading uh, now for a number of reasons. Uh, but where opportunistic capital is going into, you can imagine in the mall space, uh, looking at some mixed-use components that are heavy entertainment-themed, uh, looking at street-level retail, we would call it, uh, at ur in urban areas in particular, just given the precipitous fall in rents and things like that. So we're looking at those types of formats and primarily looking at recapitalizing or providing capital to best-in-class operators, uh, either in a combined operating model where we're merging the capital with the operator uh, in, in a new business model, or we're just doing strategic JVs uh, with them across the country. So very few investors would do this directly. They would team with best-in-class operators to go make it happen. Got it. Great. Thank you. Uh, we do have some questions coming in, but I think because of the number of uh, people we have on the call, uh, if you may be having trouble getting into the chat function, be sure and uh, feel free to unmute yourself and ask a direct question to Mark. Uh, we do have one question. You mentioned um, transit-reliant cities facing headwinds. Could you elaborate a little more on that and what you're seeing? Well, um, and again, we... I. Uh, let me preface the statement, uh, and I'll just take New York uh, as an example. Um, New York is not going to go away. Uh, they've had a, a triple whammy of events that have hit it. Um, this COVID situation uh, will be solved to some degree over time. Confidence will return, um, and you will have a, a, a different dynamic. Uh, in New York long term. It's just going to take more time. And at the moment, they're facing fairly dramatic uh, declines across virtually all property types, and they are facing out migration. Now, whether that continues, we'll see. For a lot of reasons, uh, it's not just the urban component, it could be regulatory overlays, it could be governmental, uh, political uh, overlays less business friendly environments in certain situations. Safety has become a big issue uh, in many, many corporates. And I'm speaking primarily of uh, corporate moves and various things like that. So those uh, hopefully will get settled out. But in the interim, 
um, it's been it's been challenging. Uh, so again, in Dallas, we are very We've been back in the office since May, for instance. We get in a car, we drive to the office, the office environment with the protocols we put in place, much more safe than going to a grocery store or a drugstore or other entertainment themes. So it's very safe here to go do. But if you had to jump on a train uh, and commute vis-a-vis -vis mass transit and your vertical transportation was not nearly as efficient, perhaps, uh, given dates of buildings and ages of buildings and various things like that, it's a little more challenging, so it's taken longer. Uh, but having said that, there's no lack of capital that would play in these more challenged markets that we see now for all the reasons we discussed. The regulatory, the safety components, the taxation policies, and just the urban density uh, of them. Um, there is capital, and ample capital, to go in. You just have a fairly significant bid ask out. So my guess is you won't see trades in those markets rebound nearly as quickly as you'll see them happening in other parts of the country. Great. Uh, another question, is the lower leverage a result of buyers wanting less leverage or a result of lenders controlling the amount of leverage? It's both. It's a great question. Um, this has been the case really since the GFC. So you have a behavioral uh, component to this where people are just more conservative because they, real estate uh, has matured so much uh, for uh, particularly in the last 10 years in terms of people thinking about how do I position my company? How do I position the asset to sustain shocks? And we don't know where they're coming from. This is a great example. It's a silver lining in many, many ways. So how do you sustain shocks? And what is the appropriate capital structure, leverage level being one of them, uh, to, to make certain that I don't lose an asset or my company in the middle of a shock uh, that could happen. So it's just a, it's a behavioral component with the owners of the assets, or consumers of capital, and then lenders, uh, rightly so. Just, they honestly have not changed their behavior through the GFC, they've gotten they've gotten more, uh, let's say, less conservative uh, as time went on post the GFC in terms of LTVs and the risk that they were willing to take, which was appropriate. But they never really got close to 05, 06, 07 in any form or fashion. So I think it's a lesson learned component from both capital and from the borrowing community. So it's a it's really a good detente, if you will. Probably the best I've seen it. That's great. Holland, I'm seeing a button flashing. Is that someone raising their hand wanting to ask a question? I am not seeing a button flashing, so it might be somebody sending a chat directly to you, Ken. Let me double check. That's not coming up on mine either. Um, one of the things I was glad to hear you say, Mark, is um, you're bullish on office and um, that you all are not seeing the work from home uh, have a you know, potential negative impact long term on the value of office. Are you seeing any investors uh, skittish early on and doing any early divestiture of the percentage of their investments in office? They're all skittish uh, because it's uncertain. 
um, and particularly the Odyssey funds, who again, the business model is such that if you're over allocated office, particularly large scale office or high, we call it high concentration risk, large assets, uh, a large amount of money in a single asset, we'll put it that way. So everyone's nervous because, you know, you look at the media, you look at the press, which I try not to do anymore. But if, if you look at, at, at what they're saying about office, uh, it is mostly, uh, it's taking trend lines and then extrapolating things out that really don't have a basis when you go back and really study the data. And so when you look at the data, and I think the, the data is very compelling. And if you want a copy of our office position, we'll get it to everyone, it's mm -hmm. public. But it goes through this in great detail. It just goes through the data. You can, you can derive your own conclusions from it. But I think if we all look at our own uh, circumstances, um, even the most disciplined of us would have to objectively admit that you are less productive at home for a variety of reasons. Now, it changes by business. So if you are a small owner of industrial, or multi-housing or others, maybe it doesn't affect you as much relative to, or an investment shop, it doesn't affect you as much initially because you can do a lot uh, online. And I think that's one of the great silver linings here that actually could benefit the office that we are, we can tread water, we can take care of business remotely from a technology perspective, et cetera. I think that's a good thing, particularly like for markets in San Francisco or Chicago or New York, because if you can work from home effectively on a Monday or a Friday and come into the office three days, you might retain more people and you might retain more people longer if they don't have these massive commutes. So that is one takeaway. The second takeaway that is becoming quite obvious, and I'd just like to make everyone aware of it, is that some companies, particularly the tech companies, will talk their book publicly, but in reality, look at what they're doing. So when you look at the tech companies, they are by far the largest consumers of office space at the moment in terms of largest leases signed in the United States over the last six months. So rather than watching or listening to what they say, you should watch what they're doing and, and how they're acting there. And so when you look at the positives, of work from home, which there are quite a few. I think to keep more people in real estate, like the high talented people that otherwise might not have done it for a number of reasons. Certain industries like engineering, uh, deep industries, highly quantitative industries may not need the collaboration, the creativity and the training that a business like ours needs. So it is going to be somewhat different, but when we look at it in totality, we look at the uh, lack of productivity that a business like ours witnessed, or you can talk to the largest investment managers in the world and they will all tell you that their productivity fell to 60 to 70% of what it was pre-COVID. Uh, you look at businesses like that or highly creative and growth businesses, it is very, very difficult to grow and retain best people and train people appropriately. It's just very difficult. So that's why we're uh, bullish. In addition, the deep densification, since we're on the forefront from a tenant rep standpoint in a lot of these discussions, the architectural plans that we're witnessing now by large corporations and what they're doing.
doing. It was already existing pre-COVID, but the de-densification is real. So when you combine these components of de-densification, positives of work from home, a higher percentage of work from home in some cases, but maybe not in totality, we think it averages out to a better place for office long-term. Now, near-term, it's likely to be pain. Yep. Um, because you're just going to have people not making decisions uh, until the health uh, component is resolved. And that's primarily due to fear of a, a lot of things uh, with some of your largest corporates. So until we get a little further progressed in the vaccine side and some of the therapeutics, you know, no decisions uh, are probably the safest avenue for some companies. Great, great. We have time for one more question. And um, believe it or not, several people have asked the same question, somewhat of a loaded question. Do you have any thoughts on the impact of the election on capital markets? I do not. Um, I just don't. I just don't. I, I do two things in life, and I'm sorry, I'm just not smart enough. So that's the real reason. Uh, and I really, I'm not smart enough to talk about interest rates and where they may go. I'm really not smart enough to talk about the Justice Department and, and what might happen. I did mention early on that. Um, the, uh, the 1031 exchange and the cap gain change was very disturbing to a large number of participants in the real estate space. We'll see how that plays out. So keep an eye there. Uh, and, and remember that taxation cap gains, it was over a certain amount of income was going to 39%, 39.6%. It's a pretty big jump. And the elimination of 1031 would be interesting for a number of players in the space. So let's watch that relative to the direct impact uh, to commercial real estate. But otherwise, Kim, I'm, I'm not I'm not competent enough or intelligent enough to answer the question. Well, I think you're smart enough not to answer the question. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mark. This is uh, always such a great uh, flow of information. And you cover it quickly and um, cover a lot of a lot of uh, content. So thanks so much. Appreciate you being with us today and your generous time and preparation to give us the program that you did today. Now I'll uh, invite Linda McMahon, the president of the Real Estate Council, to come and give us a wrap. Uh, thanks, Kim. Uh, thanks for your leadership this year. And also we're excited about you becoming our vice chairman in 2021. So excited about that. Um, and also, thanks, Mark Gibson. We uh, really count on you to provide us with the most recent and current capital markets information, and we always appreciate your insights. Uh, thank you to our sponsors, Grant Thornton, Colliers International, and DCEO. Uh, this also will be, now be uh, turned into a podcast, so you'll be able to listen to it in another time, so we're excited about that. We pride ourselves on bringing you cutting-edge contact that content from the greatest thinkers and leaders in our industry. And we're so grateful to all of you, our members who make all of this possible. We couldn't do any of this without you. So thank you. I look forward to seeing you when we can uh, see each other together in person. And um, hopefully we'll be accomplishing great things in 2021. I hope you and your families have a safe and happy holiday season. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. That's it for today's show. I'd once again like to thank Mark Gibson for his insights into the capital markets, as well as Grant Thornton, Colliers International, and DCEO for their sponsorship and support of Market Matters. 
Subscribe to TrekCast if you like what you heard today. And don't forget to follow us on social media for the latest news and updates from around the Real Estate Council. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.